Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Welcome to The Rest is History and our second episode on the history of disease when we're joined by the University of Oklahoma's magisterial Professor Kyle Harper. So, Kyle, if we can jump on a couple of centuries from where we were before, but also kind of back to something you alluded to earlier, the Columbian Exchange, which is this absolute extraordinary moment in world history when, you know, Columbus um, arrives first of all in the Caribbean, then you have the arrival of the conquistadors in in Mexico and Peru. The classic stories that you know Tom, you and I would have read as yep. pure adventure stories when we yep. were growing up as as boys, and there was virtually no mention of it at all. I would have said in the kind of children's histories of the of the the subsequent kind of death toll. So what's the the the, the thinking now? Because you, I mean, obviously there is a colossal death toll, but it's not as cataclysmic as is often thought. Um, and what are the diseases that the Europeans? Are bringing um, and what and also crucially, I suppose, you know, obviously, an exchange implies a two-way process. So, how is it that the 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 uh, the indigenous Americans, as it were, are dying in such large numbers, but not the Europeans, or are the Europeans dying and we just don't talk about it? Yeah, well, those are all great questions, and I'd say there was a tendency in the maybe sixties, seventies, eighties, among scholars to. Um, to exaggerate the population of the new world and to say there were 100, 120 million people in the Americas uh, at the time of European arrival. That now seems in general, probably uh, implausible. Um, the The real number we don't know, but it's, it's probably, you know, closer to 40 million, give or take 10 million than it is triple that number. The, the, Proposition that there were a hundred and something million people in the Americas at the time of the New World sort of required that the arrival of, say, smallpox just sort of swept over the the entire continent um, or both continents um, without before the Europeans could even get there in person uh, in many cases. And I think that version of the story um, has really suffered from from a close look, um, but. With that said, um, I, I still think that we can overdo that um, historiographical correction. So we can we can be too critical of of that story. And well, you sort say of forget you, yeah, that the biology matters. You you say about uh, so we, we we talked about the conquistadors and Cortez arriving in um, um, the Aztec Empire. The the demographic crash of Mexico in the 16th century is one of the most extreme yeah. demographic events attested in history. In 1516, there were perhaps 8 to 10 million inhabitants there. By the end of the century, there are 2 to 3 million. But that might yeah. not just be because of disease, though, Tom. That might be because of the collapse of agriculture or disruption or war or, all these, or famine or all these other things, right? But it's clearly all of it. And it's only a question of, of in what proportion and through what mechanisms. I mean, there were... There was a massive smallpox pandemic in the 15, in 1520, 1521 that must kill um, a, a tragic number of people. There's another disease outbreak in the 1540s um, that is extremely well attested in the, the evidentiary record. We don't totally know what it was, and it may have been multiple diseases. This is also one really cool area where the ancient DNA, there was a team that sequenced 
the DNA of the pathogen that killed a victim, several victims from skeletons at a site in South Central Mexico in the 1540s. And what they found was paratyphoid fever. <laughs> so it wasn't, wasn't smallpox, which doesn't mean smallpox wasn't there. It wasn't typhus, which doesn't mean typhus wasn't there. But what they did find in a number of these mass burial um, skeletal remains was a, uh, was a bacterial pathogen that is transmitted via the fecal oral route. So a, a disease that is transmitted in waste um, that would have been introduced from Europe, from the old world. And this is a really interesting find, unexpected find. And it does remind us that it wasn't just these big notorious diseases like smallpox, but it's the, the total biological change, the introduction of a large number of pathogens that would have been unfamiliar in the new world. So that's a, that's a really good example, but 1540s, then again, a generation later, and then again, about a decade later. So there's these four really big pandemics that strike one of the most densely settled corridors of the new world in central Mexico and really did have cumulatively a major, major demographic effect. I was really intrigued by um, by tuberculosis, which you describe as arguably the great human disease that um, apparently it was in the in the new world before Columbus arrived there because so it originates in is it East Africa? Uh, it spreads um, and seals seem to have caught it and they seem to have swum across the Atlantic and then been butchered and eaten and this is this is the crazy this is the crazy story that um, that seems to to be the the way that the dots are connected as far as we know now and it may change as as um, archaeogeneticists get more DNA but tuberculosis is and we can talk about it is one of the the great human diseases by any measure it's a chronic respiratory disease it's a very strange disease and it causes a huge burden of morbidity and mortality one of the big like mysteries was that um, tuberculosis the people who work on skeletons archaeologists who work on new world skeletons really believed that tuberculosis was, was there. Um, and the, one of the things about tuberculosis, because it's a chronic disease, it can leave a mark on the skeleton. Most of these acute infectious diseases, so like plague or smallpox, they kill you so quickly. They don't leave evidence in your skeleton, but chronic infectious diseases like leprosy, tuberculosis, um, syphilis can produce uh, very diagnostic stresses in, in skeletal remains. And so the people who worked on the neural burns were saying tuberculosis was here. And if you were looking at the record, um, the historical record, there were various reasons to think that that was maybe not the case. Certainly when we started getting genetics, all of the new world tuberculosis today is descended from European tuberculosis. So this caused a real like uh, dissonance. And the way it seems to be resolved at the moment is that there was, so there was tuberculosis here before Columbus, the DNA has been found. What's interesting about the, the lineage of the DNA of tuberculosis in the new world prior to European arrival is that it seems to be very closely related to and descended from a branch of the bacterial family tree, uh, that is, that is commonly found in sea mammals. So this, suggest the possibility that that this ultimately human disease is going from humans into other animals. So tuberculosis is a human disease as we know it, but it it also infects other animals. Um, and it's possible that humans, either directly or through some other intermediate animals, gave it to sea mammals who have helped disperse it to places uh, across oceans yeah. even before humans could move. So it's a pretty wild 
um, story that the puzzle pieces certainly can be fit together that way. Um, and it, it does resolve this big problem that there's tuberculosis in the new world before Columbus. You can see it in the bones, but when European tuberculosis arrives, it sort of out competes yeah. the, the local strains that don't exist anymore. Can I ask a question? We had questions sent in by our listeners. We haven't, we've, Tom and I frequently yeah. fail to ask <laughs> any of the, the questions that the listeners have sent in. Well, so we should so ask good, some. In fairness. So we should ask while you're very kind. So, um, a couple of them sent in questions about divine punishment. So, um, Joshua Terry, SW Jacobs, they both said, at what point do people stop seeing disease as divine punishment? So we, we, the Black Death is a, is, a, is a great example, isn't it? Because there were lots of people at the time who said, we are being punished for our sins by God. And obviously over time, that dwindles. But at what point do you think, I mean, early modern, what's the point, or, 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 or later, you know, 18th century Victorian, what's the point in which people stop looking, as it were, to the heavens for the causes? Yeah, well, I mean, and obviously uh, it never completely stops, right? Think of some of the, the responses to AIDS or even COVID-19. Um, so so it doesn't completely stop, but uh, the the point of the question is a good one. And the way I would would get to to the real answer, I think, is the 18th century. Uh, and I think this is a really seminal moment in the culture of science, and that includes medical science, where, of course, there's rational medical science going back to antiquity. Um, and yet in the 18th century, there becomes a much more pervasive, one, empirical mindset. So it's sort of part of the triumph of of, um, of let's not trust dogma, whether that's religious dogma or received, you know, Hippocratic Galenic medicine, we have to test everything and look at, look at, um, you know, one of, I think the great, um, accomplishments of the human mind is Edward Jenner's 1798 publication of the, the discovery of vaccination. It is, it is a perfect reflection of 18th century empiricism in that, it's very undogmatic. I mean, he doesn't really have a theory of why vaccination works. He sort of is interested in connections between animal and human health and disease, obviously. Um, but it's a series of case studies. I mean, it, you know, his, his proposition, his hypothesis about vaccination is only going to stand or fall on Whether the empirical record. Yeah. It's a really cool, it's an amazing accomplishment, but it's a, to me, a, a kind of symbol of the, the empirical mindset, but also combined with that, is a kind of optimism that infectious disease can be prevented. Um, that, and they don't think of it as infectious disease even, just that uh, a large number of human diseases, before they even understand germs, microbiology really is the, the key to understanding the mechanisms of disease. There's a sense that, that human societies and human individuals can do things. They can wash their clothes. They can avoid uh, really closed indoor environments where the air is congested and dirty. They don't understand that tuberculosis is spread in tiny little droplets that carry the bacterium from one person to the next. But if you say we can prevent disease by making sure that there's good ventilation and access to clean water and that we're draining swamps so that they, they have the mechanism totally wrong of what calls of what causes uh, malaria or what they call the ague. But if they say we can stop it by draining this swamp. Um, yeah. They don't know that it's well, killing the mosquitoes that are transmitting the disease, but it works. So, so on the topic of of, um, of insects and, and transmission, you have you have a I thought a, a completely devastating chapter, um, basically on the impact that the slave trade 
has on the spread of diseases from this kind of great sink of disease in West Africa to the, the tropics in, in the new world. Um, and you, you describe um, Aylis aegypti, mosquito, as the most dangerous animal in the world because it it takes yellow fever to the character Jamaica, to Barbados, mm-hmm. islands that had been covered in jungle that have then been felled, sugarcane planted. And what this um, insect needs is sugar, <laughs> human bodies, and stationary water. And on the, on the slave plantations, you have all three. Obviously, we think of, of um, uh, slavery as a plague, but I had not realized that it, it, it kind of literally serves to incubate plague as well mm-hmm. and disease and is is this something that is widely appreciated because i had i had you know i hadn't appreciated it at all I, until i read your chapter well i thank you i i think it's so important and i think it has been too often missing from big histories of disease for whatever reason now there's there's some very good work um and and in particular i'm uh, indebted to the work of John McNeil, uh, whose book Mosquito Empires is is an amazing contribution to understanding these diseases. But for whatever reason, the the histories as they've been written have been, I think, very um, Eurocentric and focused on um, what diseases Europeans are carrying, like smallpox or typhus, um, which we don't really know where that comes from. But um, but there's been not nearly the same amount of interest or attention on the the introduction of tropical diseases from the old world to the new world. And this has a huge effect on the, the kinds of societies that take shape in the Americas and, and the kinds of societies that take shape in the Americas influence the diseases, how they move and, and how they fare in the Americas. So exactly as you were describing the creation of a, of a sugar plantation regime creates the ecological context where because they're death traps, basically aren't they're they? death I mean, traps. They're uh, uh, unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's, the, the inhumanity of it is is also mind boggling and and just extraordinary to to contemplate. But there, um, the the mortality rates in um, the places like the Caribbean, Brazil, in early modern times are um, some of the probably the worst sustained uh, mortality rates in in any sort of large scale context in human history. Um, and so I think we have to reckon with. What are, what are the environmental dimensions of that? What are the specific diseases? And you mentioned yellow fever and malaria. Those are um, probably the, the two biggest ones. But there are others like hookworm um, and yaws um, um, that are also part of the story and, and kind of get left out um, sometimes. But but that dimension of the the whole Colombian exchange, making sure that, that it's not just what Europe brings to the Americas, but also is this triangular movement between Europe, Africa and the New World. Because that also affects the kind of societies that grow up in. So you meant to talk about West Africa, for example. Europeans don't, you know, settle in in West Africa, obviously, because it's notoriously dangerous. I mean, you, you'll die of disease. You know, a posting to a West African kind of fort or something or a trading yeah. station can often be a death sentence, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly one of the one of the factors for why. Um, there's there's not direct European colonization of West Africa. It's simply that the um, the disease regime, um, first and foremost, um, the the effect of of malaria, falciparum malaria, the worst form of malaria, imposes such a heavy burden of mortality that it's not even really um, a, a possibility until the 19th century with with 
um, advances in medicine and, and weaponry at the same time. So the, um, the European mortality rates that are involved in the West African trade that we can sort of piece together are so astonishingly high. You just sort of wonder how did this even, how did they convince people to, to even be willing to, to take part in it? It must, it was deceit, desperation, greed. Um, but, but it's still just astonishing how, how deadly it was to, to, encounter some of the environments of malaria that that they were exposed to we talked all about sugar is it a different story on cotton plantations in the american south are they are they is the mortality rate from disease lower there yeah i mean this is something i can, I can only kind of uh superficially get into in the book because trying to move across so much time and space but it's clearly when you think about disease you're always talking about the, the total ecological context you know what what's being grown what are the soils like and there's a huge variety as you, even within the Caribbean, but as you move into the, say the U.S. South, um, obviously the unhealthiest regions of the South are like the, the Mississippi Delta and the, the really deep South. Um, New Orleans, probably one of the, the most unhealthy places in North America. It's really the only place where yellow fever can, can basically be endemic, um, virtually all the time. Um, and then there's a huge difference again as you move into like the tidewater Atlantic, um, and differences even between like, South Carolina um, and the the Mid Atlantic, um, where the the plantation environments, the, the soils, crops, crop regimes, agricultural regimes, the social systems that those require, as well as the mosquitoes, you know what what um, disease vectors and what diseases can exist um, are all interconnected, uh, and the the diseases are part of that story, but. Um, the, the line, and then even as you move further north, the, um, the Mason Dixon line in the U.S. from really the south to the north along the Atlantic, um, which is sort of the, the transitional zone also where slavery moves from becoming a really absolutely dominant social institution mm-hmm. to a kind of increasingly marginal one, um, is also a really important disease gradient in the, in the ecology of disease. And so you don't really have falciparum malaria. Um, above the, the mid Atlantic ever in the, in the United States, um, whereas you do have it in, say, South Carolina. And that's a huge, huge, um, ingredient. And it's a really important part of the story. And if you look at, at the history of colonialism, European colonialism, and I guess specifically British colonialism, um, the, the, the settler colonies, whether it's New England in the 17th century or, um, Australia or Canada, these are, it's not a coincidence that these are areas that are, are essentially kind of immune to yellow fever and malaria and all the kind of diseases that otherwise would, would prevent settler communities from establishing themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's interesting too, the, the mentality um, of, of colonialism doesn't, um, doesn't really think in those terms. And, you know, one, one example of this is in the 1760s when it's obvious that the British are on the verge of defeating the French and preparing for treaty talks. Um, there was a huge discussion in Britain about whether the Brits should demand Canada, oh, that's like right. yeah. all of Canada yeah. or Guadalupe, <laughs> you know, it's tiny yeah. Caribbean island. And it was the fact that it was even sort of a, yeah. a major and, and, you know, intensely felt debate. Do you want what we would now, you know, just thinking of it in crass economic terms, a region of vast natural resources and um, hugely expansive land surface uh, or 
a sugar island. And um, there were a lot of people who said we should we should demand um, sure this French sugar island um, because it was so valuable um, in, in terms of the 18th century economy. Let's take a quick break here. We'll see you in a few minutes. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. So going into the 19th century, um, th this is this is when people start to um, certainly in in um, in, in Britain uh, and I guess in, in the United States as well and in West European cities. Um, there's there's massive projects to reform public health. There's a, there's a kind of understanding that um, basically living in your own shit isn't good and that dumping it in rivers isn't good. Um, but but. That is still the assumption is still that there are kind of things like miasmas that that drift around. And you say in your book that the, the concept of the miasma, the idea that that germs kind of drift along on the air, is um, it, it's 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 wrong, but it's creatively wrong because it generates these campaigns to reform toxic cities. Yeah, exactly. I mean. Um Miasma, miasma theory, the idea that sort of different kinds of um, environmental corruption or, or um, pollution in the atmosphere, putrefying matter, um, so it's, it's something you can smell, um, is a source of disease. You know, we may know it to be wrong because it doesn't, doesn't really posit the existence of, of microbiological agents that infect the body. Um, but it may steer you towards doing some things that, that nevertheless work. And again, I mentioned, you know, Jenner doesn't even know how vaccination works. There's yeah. similar, you can think of parallels in terms of some of the public health movements towards um, sewage and clean water. And in the 
context of the early 19th century, you have rapid industrialization, rapid urbanization, uh, all of which is sort of, in some ways, setting back human health. Well, and again, skeletons start to shrink, don't they? They so, do. Yeah. Yeah. You, you see that it's, it's, it's a paradox. Um, you see both very clearly in Western Europe and the United States. In the United States, it's called the Antebellum paradox that we know there's economic growth and urbanization and trade and manufacturers and finance are expanding, but also people are getting shorter. And, um, the reason is because of the, the challenges of living in urban settlements. And one thing this does is it spurs the, the rise of a public health movement. So it kind of, the sanitarian movement, the, the galvanization of a political force that starts to agitate. Uh, and this has a multi, it takes different shape in different societies as multiple facets. There's a social justice element to it that yeah. says, look, urbanization is making uh, people very, very poor and desperate laborers. So there's, there's, there's and really political dimensions, this, but they, they, they're on the track of saying we have to clean up the cities. And is that turbocharged by the emergence of a, the new disease of cholera, which I hadn't realized. I mean, basically, it emerges, you say, in August 1817, uh, 50 miles from Calcutta, which seems yeah. very precise origination <laughs> yeah. point. It's cholera is cholera is in some ways um, one of the the most revealing diseases of the 19th century, particularly from a global perspective. And I think, first of all, you have to look at it from a global perspective. It's a major disease. It's still a major disease. Um, it's a terrifying disease when when you it's fecal oral transmission, so you get it from from poop getting into the, the digestive tract of the next victim, it causes very severe and rapid dehydration. So it can kill you within a, a day of infection, which is, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, and it, it really is a product of globalization. We now know that cholera isn't an ancient disease. It may have existed before 1817, um, but not for, for all that long. Um, and, and that really is the moment when it becomes a, a global disease. It reaches Calcutta. It reaches the the shipping networks of yeah, because the, because it's next to Calcutta, which is the capital of British India, and British exactly. So then it goes out into the world, and it it goes out into the world again and again. We see that. And the first wave doesn't quite make it to Western Europe, but it's terrifying. But then in 1832, it does. Um, it reaches it reaches Europe and the United States, and. It's it's a disease that's interesting in that it doesn't actually kill anything like the number of people that plague or soon influenza will in Western Europe. But it really it scares the heck out of society because it, it it's at a time when um, there'd already been really important progress against in controlling epidemic disease. So the the really violent plagues, mortality shocks, mostly caused by Yersinia pestis. Um, had sort of been brought under control in Western Europe. Most people still died of infectious disease, but they died of mm. tuberculosis and typhoid and sort of constant endemic diseases. And cholera was partly terrifying because it killed you so quickly and it was so ghastly violent uh, in its course. But it was also terrifying because it was clearly causing these major epidemics at a time when Europe had just sort of started to to get those under control and it threatened to undo that. Just to ask on on the impact that cholera has. It's also um, a disease of the poor, right? Because the poor are likelier to have in filthy water. Um, yeah, and so in a sense, exactly. that that kind of amplifies social justice movements. It cuts across, it cuts across all kinds and, of polit- political divides and issues, exactly. Um, let's talk about another globalised globalized disease, if you like, or, or another pandemic. So this is the one with which most listeners will... I guess automatically be familiar because it's the one we've heard most about since the arrival of COVID-19, which is the so-called Spanish flu. So we know that the Spanish flu 
um, was around in the great allied kind of troop camps at Etaples. There is some suggestion that it might have come from the American Midwest and been brought by. Uh, I mean, I, I, as far as I know, the jury is kind of out on that, but but maybe you know better. But do you think there are? Well, what are the what are the other lessons we can learn from the Spanish flu? Are there are there particularly resonant parallels between you know the nineteen eighteen nineteen situation and twenty 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 one, or 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 are they completely different? Do you think? Well, like a good academic, I'll say yes and no. Um, the, <laughs> of course. The, and the jury is out. Um, I think it. We, we don't really know that it came from the American Midwest. Um, the, the better, more recent work suggests it was everywhere at once by the time we really see it. And we don't actually at this time know where it came from. It's influenza A. Um, it's, it's of avian origins. So it's a, it's a virus. It's a viral disease um, whose virus is normally endemic in bird populations. It's one of the kind yeah. of unusual, because most of our diseases are mammal diseases. Um, this is a, this is a bird disease, which is kind of not totally unique, but it's, it's a little bit weird. And um, influenza evolves in very different ways from COVID-19. So it has a segmented genome. It's kind of like a genome that exists in these eight mix and match parts. Um, and this is like the H1N1 um, are describing the, the proteins for that are coded for by by these different parts, and so the the viral genome gets inside a host cell, and when it reassembles, if there's two different viruses, two different strains in the same cell, the parts, the mix and match parts, can get put together in a different fashion. So it evolves in this way that it can make it very elusive. So we still obviously um, are always trying to kind of predict and keep up with which, which strain of the, the flu is going to emerge this year. Um, the history of flu is very interesting because the 1918 flu is not the first big flu pandemic um, in history. So this is a disease that must repeatedly have moved out of bird populations into humans and caused waves of respiratory disease. Um, but the so there's one in the 1890s, isn't there? The Russian there's a flu. big one in 1890 to 92, sometimes called the Russian flu. And so people have um, compared that to, to COVID. Well, um, even more than that, some people have um, wondered, set back a little bit here, there are, including COVID-19, there are seven coronaviruses that infect humans from this family, seven different species. Four of them before COVID-19 are already everywhere. We've all probably had a couple of them. They cause little common colds. We, we can estimate how old these viruses are. And an older paper about 15 years ago using the, the viral genome said that one of the main causes of the common cold in human, this species of coronavirus, emerged around 1890. And so mm-hmm. this sometimes has caused people to wonder, could the Russian flu, because we don't have the, the DNA or RNA, I should say, of the, uh, the Russian flu. Um, so we don't actually know what caused it. Uh, and so people have said, could this have been actually the emergence event of this now common cold coronavirus? I think it's a really interesting question. And, and we would like hard data in the form of the RNA of the virus from lung tissue of a victim, which surely exists in a museum collection somewhere. Um, they got measles from from like 1911 from a, a lung preserved in formaldehyde. So somebody somewhere should be able to, to just solve this question. But I think the Russian flu is probably flu. Um, in 1918, though, this 
influenza pandemic explodes. And it's a, it's true. It's a really extraordinary event. In some ways it's the, it's the ultimate expression of uh, a globalized world without yet jet travel. So it's still steamship and railroads that are, that are spreading it over long distances. Um, but it is this, it's the ultimate pandemic in, in the age of fossil fuel transportation mm-hmm. and its global impact is enormous 50 to hundred million dead. Um, they didn't have the same therapeutics or clinical care that we have today. Um, and it, paradoxically, one of the really big differences, I, I think this, we can't emphasize this enough is that the 1918 flu disproportionately affects healthy people in their late childhood to, to early adulthood. And the, the demographic and social and economic impact of that is very different from COVID-19, but also just the moral political dimensions of this. So I think, I don't think this is right, by the way, but I'm just saying it as a descriptive fact. I think if COVID-19 really, really made a lot of kids sick, that the whole moral political response yeah. to it would be different. Uh, I think parents true. would just say, yeah. screw it, you're all getting vaccinated and wearing well, masks, or you're not going to be in public well, ever again. Well, that, so, so that takes us back to the passage that I, I, be, I read right at the beginning of our, our kind of tour de raison of, of, of history and disease, where you say that, that I'll read it again, that, that dying of infectious disease had become anomalous, virtually scandalous in the developed world. Um, that is clearly a part of, of the impact that COVID has had, isn't it? It is felt as a kind of scandal. It's a, it's a moral scandal that anyone should die of it. Uh, but it's also a kind of scandal in the, in that this shouldn't be happening to us. We've it doesn't, it, this is a stage us, of history it, that we've... Yeah, yeah, it offends yeah, our sense of progress, doesn't it? You know, we've moved we, on from this. Yeah, exactly. And it, and that's one of the big differences in from the 1918, morally and politically. That was a society, even in uh, places like Britain and the United States, where they still lived in a world where everyone uh, alive, you know, was, was more exposed to the burden of infectious disease. And they remembered a very, very recently receding world where it was just such a part of life. Whereas we've now had several generations where we just don't expect um, an infectious disease to to cause a plague. I mean, a plague sounds like. Don't these viruses know who we are? (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that people perhaps you said about COVID is that it's an effect of globalization. I mean, that's clearly the case that flights and, and everything. But clearly one of the lessons of what you've been saying is that globalization has always been bad for health. That people moving around the world—it's you know right from the very beginning. Um, but doesn't this, it go? This, isn't it bigger than globalization, Tom? Isn't it? Or, I mean, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth now, Carl. So feel free to tell me I'm talking absolute rubbish. But isn't it that civilization? Well, that has, was the second. <laughs> yeah. That the, 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 the other lesson is that you, you basically you can't have a civilizational advance without a um, a pathogenic advance as well. Would, yeah, would and, and again we we may not want to hear this or believe this um, because we want simple narratives and we want to, to believe we can, we can progress and succeed, but um, look at it like an ecologist. Um, remember that we are, we're animals that uh, have parasites that want to take advantage of our success. If there are more of us, there are more cells uh, to invade and to rob and to exploit and to hijack. And so look at it from an ecologist perspective and that contradiction, that paradox kind of dissolves. Anytime there is technology that lets us be more populous and more interconnected, 
it's going to change the the zone of opportunity, the calculus for a pathogen and motivate them to try and take advantage of us in, in new ways. And so, yes, technolo- technological progress is good. It um, creates energy and alleviates poverty, suffering, and early death. Um, it also uh, helps stir the evolution of new diseases. Globalization is good. Um, it brings us the um, ideas and human diversity and, um, of course, the cuisine of the, <laughs> of the world. Um, it's a great thing with tremendous material and spiritual advantages. And there's no going back. So we couldn't and we shouldn't um, undo globalization. But that doesn't change. And this is why I say we may not want to believe this, but the reality is that also exposes us to diseases in different ways. And so we just have to confront that from uh, a realistic perspective rather than one that's kind of rooted in what we wish were the way the world works. That seems the perfect point in which to end, doesn't it, Tom? Um, yeah. Kyle, what an amazing sort of panoramic account your book is. Um, thank you. And yeah. thank you so much for coming on the podcast and taking us through it. I mean, it's actually quite a depressing story in a way, but I suppose it's it's good to – well, it doesn't need to be depressing, does it? Because it's just facing up to our own humanity and our place in the world. Well, they also, um, I mean, you right. know, you, you, you read Plagues Upon the Earth, Disease in the Course of Human History. Um, you read it and you feel even – with what we've gone through the past two years, how lucky we yeah, are to be alive. I mean, it's like, absolutely. it's like that people always say dentistry, don't they? When they say, you know, what period of life would you, what, what period of history would you like to live in? And people are the present because of dentistry, but you definitely, you, you know, you read your book and you think we, we, we are lucky to be born when we are. And I, I can't emphasize enough um, that this is a brilliant work of history, but it's also stylistically brilliant. It's wonderfully well-written. Um, Thank you. And indeed, um, <laughs> the incredible book that you wrote on slavery and on um, Christian sex and morality in late antiquity. Very different fields. So um, Tom definitely has your picture by his side. <laughs> well, it's mutual. It's well, mutual. well, do you know, do you know, I mean, I, 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 th- I think your books on late antiquity, I think you're, you're the heir of Peter Brown and there is no higher praise that can be be given there is none but that's that's too kind thank you all this was this was a lot of fun i'm I'm very touched by your kind words and and thoughtful readership of the book and um it is a little a little depressing but there are some there's some optimistic and hopeful elements too so um we can we'll we'll pull through this eventually it hasn't been pretty and it won't be but um but i'm an optimist in the long run okay thanks so much kyle thank you thanks so much for listening um we'll see you next week bye-bye bye-bye Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.